The following is a sermon from Park Church in Denver, Colorado. More information and resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. So good morning, Park Church. Um, This morning will be our scripture reading is from Acts chapter 1, verses 6 through 11. And if you don't have a Bible of your own, there should be a Bible in the pew back in front of you. And in that Bible, it's on page 855. And if you, also, if you don't have a Bible of your own, please uh, accept that Bible and take that Bible home with you as a gift from Park Church. So Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who is taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you. Good morning. Hope you're doing well. My name is Gary. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, So glad to have you all with us. If you're new to Park, um, yeah, thanks for coming. Glad you're here with us as well. Every week we take a little space right after the service uh, for those who are new just to get to know one of our staff members and learn more ways to get involved if you're interested or if that would be helpful for you. And so right after the service, there's a sign over in the back corner that says new here. Again, it's about 10 minutes. One of our staff members would be there. We'd love to get to know you, help you find more ways to get plugged in, or if you have any questions that we could help answer, we'd be glad to do that. Uh, if that feels awkward and not interested in that, you can also grab that info card in front of you and fill that out and reach out. If there's any way we can help you, we'd love to. And so um, we are this morning in our fourth of four weeks of Advent, our final week of Advent before Christmas Eve this coming Saturday. And so a couple things about this coming weekend as a church family. Uh, It's Christmas, in case you didn't know. Um, If you didn't know, you know, Amazon is really good at quick deliveries most of the time. And uh, if your delivery person comes by, make sure you thank them because they're working extra hours right now for you and for me and the procrastinators among us. Um, we, uh, We as a church family will be gathering to celebrate the, the beauty that is Christmas. In Christmas, we celebrate this incredible reality that the creator of the universe, God, became a human being to dwell among us. Uh, not just to dwell among us, but to enter into this world to demonstrate the sacrificial love of the Father by the way he lived, the way he engaged with others around him, and ultimately by the way he laid down his life on the cross to bring forgiveness, grace, reconciliation with God, but also to pave a way for all things to be restored. 
And what we're celebrating in this particular Advent season is also this reality that as he began to, through his own life, death, and resurrection, bring all things into this place of restoration and healing and transformation, he promises he will come again to make all things new. And so we'll gather this weekend to celebrate what he did to become a baby. Our services will be on Saturday, not on Sunday morning. We're doing Christmas Eve services at 3.30 and at 5 p.m., at 3.30 and 5 p.m. If you've never been at a Christmas Eve service at Park, it's a ton of fun. Kids are in here. It's singing, lots of singing and scripture readings, a very short message, um, which makes everybody happy. And, uh, and then uh, we close in some really beautiful transitions uh, or uh, traditions where we get to sing Silent Night to Candlelight. It's a really, really beautiful time. So we'd invite you uh, to come. Again, that's 3.30 or 5 p.m. on Saturday. We won't be having services here on Sunday. We'll send out some resources to guide you as you're worshiping in your home with family or friends or roommates or relatives, whatever it might be. We'll send resources out to guide you in that if that's helpful for you. Uh, but we'll be doing our corporate worship as a church on Christmas Eve and then be worshiping Jesus all around the city and around the nation, wherever God takes you on Christmas morning. So love for you uh, to be here with us Christmas Eve, 3.30 p.m. and 5 p.m. This morning, in our final week of Advent, what we're focusing in on is how this concept of this future coming of Christ, which we've been talking about, the name of our series is Christ Will Come Again. If you're new to Christianity, that, that phrase, the, the future coming of Christ, or Christ will come again, or the second coming, uh, might feel a little bit cryptic, maybe even weird. Um, but we believe in this, this book, the Bible, as an unfolding story about God's plan to bring redemption and restoration to the world. And it talks about what Christ did when he came into this world that we celebrate on Christmas. Talks about what Christ did when he laid down his life on the cross. We celebrate that every year on Good Friday. We talk about it every Sunday. And it celebrates what, what Christ did when he rose from the dead on the third day. But what we just read this morning from Acts chapter 1 is that 40 days after he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven and he promised that he would come again. That there would be a time in the future when this unfolding story would come to a culmination. It'd come to this final resolution where all the broken things in this world, the things that you and I are really familiar with, the things we experience in our own lives, the things we experience in our own families, the things we've experienced in our own story, the things we experience all around the world around us in our own city, the brokenness that seems to kind of plague everything in different times and in different ways, that reality that when he comes again, he will bring restoration and renewal to all things. All will be made right. All will be restored. Tears will be wiped away. All will be new. And that's what we're celebrating in Advent. We're letting this Advent season, how the people of Israel anticipated the first coming of Christ to shape the way we learn to anticipate and to wait and to engage in this world while we wait for his return. So that's what we're doing. And this this week in particular, we're, we're thinking about how that future coming of Christ, the return of Christ, informs the way we think about our mission here and now in the world. That something about what he's doing and what will happen when he comes again ought to shape the way and motivate the way we engage here and now in the world. And so if you join me, we're going to pray for a moment, and then we'll, we'll dive in and begin to unpack this uh, together. Would you join me as we ask God to move among us in power? Jesus, would you pour out your spirit even now? in this room and in this space. We confess that without the power of your Holy Spirit, without you working in us and among us, without your word uh, coming alive, not just in our brains, but in the depth of our hearts and our being and our soul, uh, we can gather, we can share words, we can sing words, we can pray prayers, and we can leave unchanged. 
And so we pray rather that your, your spirit be poured out in power, that the songs we sing, the prayers we pray, the way we engage with each other, the conversations we have, and the way we engage in your word here and now would bring transformation, hope, healing, and life into our lives. And I pray for any who don't know you yet, who have not come to know your love, your grace, your forgiveness, your power, your goodness, that you would speak life, freedom, and joy into their life today. So we pray you'd work in power among us. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. When I was a kid, I detested reading. Like, like thorough detestation. I mean, like hated it. Hated it. In fact, my family, uh, my mom would make us in the summertime, in the summertime, mind you, the time we were supposed to get a break from reading. Um, Summertime would make us read like 15 or 20 minutes or something before we go play outside. And that's when kids used to play outside, which is really cool. Um, And so before we'd go play outside, we'd have to read. And I hated reading so much and um, that I would basically take a bunch of like, even like up to like fourth and fifth grade, take a bunch of like, like preschool level, kindergarten level books that are just like alphabet kind of books. And I would just get a bunch of them and read through like 15 or 20 of them in my 20 minutes, just like flipping through. Because it just felt like at least I was getting something done. You know, it just felt like at least I was like turning pages regularly because uh, the idea of like reading brought no pleasure to me. and wasn't exciting to me. And so that continued to shape my life. I kept finding ways around reading uh, for a long time. It was late high school, late high school, when, when Sparknotes became a thing, um, which was incredible. I was like, man, I was born in the wrong time. I, that would have been helpful. That would have been helpful a few years back. But it did help me my last, my last couple years of high school. Uh, I don't recommend it as a resource to replace reading. But as a study guide to understand what you're reading, it might be helpful. Um, but for me, it was a way to avoid reading still. And it wasn't until I, I went to college. And actually, it was, it was thing, things that God was doing in my own heart around Jesus that began to kind of peak in me, maybe not an enjoyment or interest, but a kind of a, a desire to read as a way to learn. I was learning things about Jesus, and something about it was captivating me, but I'm like an inquisitive person by nature. I want to understand things, and it felt like the best way to understand the things that I have questions about was to read stuff that people were writing about it. And so I just started reading, reading the Bible more, um, which felt confusing and disconnected in different ways, hard to make, make my way around. So I started reading books that helped me make sense of the Bible and what I was reading, and I, and I fell in love with learning, uh, which required for me reading. And, uh, and that shaped my life all the way through undergrad and went to seminary and then went to grad school. And it was when I was in grad school uh, that my, my mind e- erupted with this kind of experience where I, I went to an orientation meeting with all these people in my program. And my program was like Bible nerd, Bible nerd, like central. It was all people that like Greek and Hebrew. And if you could imagine being in a room with like 30 people that love ancient languages, just imagine what that might be like. And it was like that. I mean, like, weird. It was like awkward, uncomfortable, weird, really socially. We're very socially awkward people. And, um, and that's what it was like. And, uh, and, and in this space, there are these professors that were just me, like, you know, 
the, the pinnacles of like my academic life up to that point, or these are the guys who wrote, and the women that wrote the books that I loved to read. And, and to sit in a room with some of them, like, I've read your books, and I've read your books, and I've read your books. And, and we went around the room, and I couldn't even believe it. And we were asking the question, what's your name, and what's something you did this summer? And it got to this one particular professor who was like one of the people, I'm like, I'm here to, to sit under this teacher, because I've read their stuff, I've, I've read their commentaries and their books, and I can't wait. And it got to him, and and he said, uh, oh, my name is Douglas Moo, and this, uh, this summer I reread the Harry Potter series. And I was like, what? You know, like, my mind just erupted. I mean, just exploded. Like, you've, like, told me all of these things that matter. In this summer, you reread the Harry Potter series? Like, it, did, it didn't compute. It destroyed my mind. I couldn't even, like, make sense of, like, if that felt to me like, what a colossal waste of time. But to hear him say it, like what my wife had been telling me for years, like, you would like fiction, and fiction's good, and fiction's healthy, and there's something wrong with you. Um, you know, like, these messages, like, finally through this professor made their way in a different side door into my heart, and it opened up to me, okay, maybe I'll try. My wife recommended Chronicles of Narnia as a starting point for me, and so I started, uh, we were reading out loud together, um, The Magician's Nephew, and I was like, wow, I mean, this is C.S. Lewis, you know, uh, this is nice. I liked it, I enjoyed it. Uh, it was like the right reading level for me and uh, the right kind of like skill level for me. Uh, but the meeting was also like, man, it was, it was hitting my soul in ways. Um, so I made my way through the Chronicles of Narnia and it's like, man, did he write anything else? And he did and started reading more and more and that began my, my love of C.S. Lewis which carries to this day. And then started reading other stuff, Tolkien, and started reading uh, other writers and authors, Chesterton. And then, and then I just started like, liking reading. I was enjoying fiction. So I started learning about like John Steinbeck and East of Eden and like dark stuff that made its way into a different part of my soul. That was like Aldous Huxley. I'm like, who is this? This is amazing. And reading these other people, Flannery O'Connor. And then, and then, I mean, like all of these like stories just started making their way in. And I fell in love with stories. I fell in love with reading stories, and it's interesting to me. And then I eventually read the Harry Potter series, um, obviously, and love it. Big fan. Uh, some of you are like, I don't want to go to this church anymore. Okay. Um, love you. Please stay, but whatever. Um, so I uh, fell in love with fiction. Fell in love with fiction. It was, it was interesting. At the same time, the Bible pieces began to make more sense to me. As the Bible began to, I began to see it more as a cohesive narrative. Not just an encyclopedia to learn about God, or not just like a string of pearls to pull a little nugget from in each particular day, a little nugget for the day. I hope, I hope my reading from today gives me a little nugget to take into my day. But a, a story with a plot and characters and char- character development and Dynamic twists and surprises and problems that need resolution and tensions that are break your heart and moments that make you cry and erupt with joy and anticipation and to, and to begin to see the way this, this book that was written over a thousand years by 40-some different authors, written to different people in different times facing different circumstances, was also tied together through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit into a cohesive story a story that told the story of our world and put at the center Jesus Christ, the one in whom all things are finding 
meaning. All things are finding healing. All things are finding reconciliation. The one who is the hero of the story that will, at the end of the story, bring this this cosmic resolution that makes sense of all of the twists and the turns and the pain and the heartbreaks and the devastation and the loss and the regrets, the way that this story began to make sense, it, it changed my life. I fell in love with the story of the Bible, and that love for the story of the Bible has shaped my life to this day as well. And when I think about what we're doing today, what we're talking about is we're talking about the end of the story and how this moment at the end of the story shapes the way we engage right here and right now to make sense of what we face right here and right now, to teach us how to hope and how to participate and how to have purpose right here and right now, even in the midst of the seeming chaos and the pain and the loss and the grief of this world. And what I learned as the Bible began to make a little more sense to me is the Bible is a story about a God on a mission. A God on a mission to bring wholeness, Restoration, healing, beauty, abundance, order, love, grace, justice, righteousness to the whole world, to the whole world. And the whole Bible is about that story. And so what I want to do this morning is instead of kind of diving into just Acts chapter 1, sort of the centerpiece of the story, we're not going to unpack that passage. Uh, We did it a couple years ago. We'll actually spend a little more time this spring. We're going to talk about specifically unpack the ways that our mission as a people is supposed to work out. We're going to start January 8th talking about our mission, how to live a life on mission. We're going to spend five weeks in January and the first week, five weeks at the beginning of the year starting January 8th, talking about how does this work itself out and and what arenas and ways of our life. But this morning, what I want to do is just kind of take us through this story and give what's called a biblical theology of mission. A biblical theology of mission. When we say biblical theology, it's a field in biblical studies. Uh, It's not like juxtaposed to a non-biblical theology of mission. Um, A biblical theology is where we trace the the sort of narrative arc of a theme throughout the story. We're going to trace the narrative arc of a theme, the theme of mission, throughout the story. And I'm going to break a fundamental rule of uh, literature, and then we're going to start at the end. Does anybody like that? Does anybody like to get so, like... um, like so caught up in a theme of a story, you're like, I just have to know what happens. And you like jump to the end. Anybody? Raise hands. Don't be shy. Okay. Okay. Cheaters. Uh, I said, don't be shy. No, I'm kidding. I get it too. I'm totally kidding. That's what we're doing now. So thank you for leading us this morning um, with your impatience uh, with storytelling. Um, That's where we're going to start. We're going to start at the end. And then we're going to look at, we're going to look at how this, this resolution, where the story's all headed, shapes the way and how it kind of works its way throughout the whole story. Uh, so we're going to start in Revelation chapter 21, which, fittingly, at the very end. Um, Revelation chapter 21, it's the second to last chapter of the Bible. And what I want to do is uh, just paint a picture of where the whole story's headed. And then we'll sort of reverse engineer it and back up and say, how is it that God intends to get us there? Given where we are here, and given what it says about then, what's the pathway from here to there? And we're going to have to trace the story through to see that. Revelation chapter 21, starting in verse 1. This is John, the beloved apostle of Jesus. He's at old age. He's an old man now. He's writing this vision that God had given him. And he's offering it to the church in that age and really for all generations. And so we get to read that today as an incredible gift from John uh, to us. It says this, Then I saw... A new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, 
New Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. And he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. This is the word of the Lord. What John is sharing with us is a vision of a future time when Christ comes again, and Christ will come again. He promised to do so. And when he comes, it's this picture of earth, this material world where we live and move and have our being and where we engage and relate and eat and drink and build friendships and do work and suffer and die, where we, where we have this experience, this earth, is an earth that is right now in this stage in history in some way separated from the place where God dwells, the heavenly realm. And, and the promise is that when Christ comes again, heaven and earth will become one, like this marriage between the spiritual realm and the material realm, the renewal of what was designed to be so. And this idea that when Christ comes again, the place where God dwells and the place where we dwell will be one, and we will see him, and he will be our God, and we will be his people. But it also begins to unpack what that will mean. What it means is the world will once again be full of all the things it was designed to be full of. Life instead of death. Joy instead of sorrow. Love and righteousness instead of sin and pain. Healing and transformation instead of corruption and disease. That this is the world as it will be. It's a world where there's no more Ukraine-Russia divide and war. It's a world where there's no more divisions and antagonism between people of different ethnicities and cultures. It's a world where there's no more political divisions, the right against the left, conservatives against the progressives, the rural folks versus the urban folks. It's a world where there's no more abuse, a world where there's no more addiction. It's a world where there's no more anxiety, a world where there's no more depression. A world where the griefs that we carried before, that brought tears to our eyes, innumerable tears wept over the years, over the centuries, where those tears will be wiped away and all the pain and all the sorrow will somehow be transformed to bring a weight of glory that makes these past sorrows feel comparably inconsequential. That's where the world's headed, the whole world. And it's a beautiful vision for the world. It's not what we feel here and now. It's not what we experience in this life right now. But it's where the world's headed when Christ comes again. And so the question we have to ask is, is why is that not coming now? Like, what's going on now? Where are we at now? And is there any way that that we're called to engage? What's the path from here to there? And there is in some kind of like traditions in Christian history this sort of like kick back and relax. He's going to do it. He's going to come. All will be made new, and it's only wait. And waiting is a part of it. Learning to wait, learning to wait on our tiptoes in anticipation, waiting for Christ to come again is a part of the story. But we have a mission to play in the story. We have a mission to play. 
We have a part to play in getting us from here to there. Not all on our shoulders. Not we're going to get it finally and Christ is going to come in and say, hey, thanks for making this all happen for me. Here I am. He's going to do something powerful and transformative and stunning and immediate and global. He's going to do something amazing. But there's a mission we have to play in the process. And you say, where does the Bible talk about that? It's literally what the whole Bible is about. It's literally what the whole story is about. It's about God's plan to take a world that's been broken by sin and to bring fullness and healing and renewal and restoration and the mission that he's given his people to play from the very beginning, from chapter one, to participate in what he's doing to bring renewal and restoration to the world. And so what we're going to do is back up a little bit, go all the way back to the beginning. I'm going to say a little bit, like a lot of it, and then go all the way back to the beginning and then make our way back into this moment that we find ourselves in here and now. But I want to read this verse um, from one of my favorite uh, songs. It's from Joy to the World. And I want you to, to hear, this is like this future. This is this future reality. He rules the world with truth and grace. And he makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's where the story's he- headed. Christ, ruler of the world, all nations, all people, all tongues, all tribes, all ethnicities gathered before him and around the world. And he's making the nations demonstrate and put on display the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love. That's where the story set in. What I want to do as we walk through it is uh, just because it's Christmas and it's fun and I love Christmas hymns. I've given myself a bad rap for being like an Ebenezer Scrooge. I love Christmas hymns in their right place in the right season, and, uh, and especially the old ones. I love the old ones. So we're going we're gonna to take a tour through a, a couple of them as we make our way through the story. The beginning of the story is a, is a stunning, stunning picture that looks very similar to the end of the story. God creates heavens and earth, and there's a union with the dwelling place of God and humanity. It talks about God being in the garden with humanity. He creates as this creator king, this world that's full of beauty and abundance, that's full of this potential that just needs to be unpacked by human beings. And he puts human beings in the middle of this creation in a garden. The garden doesn't fill the earth. It's in a particular place on the earth. And he puts human beings in the garden, and he tells them to accomplish this mission, to, to bear witness to who he is. That means to put his image, his, his characteristics on display by the way they relate to him and relate to each other and relate to the creation. They're supposed to walk with him and experience his love and grace and righteousness and goodness and justice. And then to put that on display in the way they live and the way they engage in this place, both relationally and with creation itself. And he gives them this mission, these human beings in the, in the, the beginning of the story, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Take this paradise that I've given you and like make something of it and, and then create families and multiply and make something of it and take the chaos that's out there and tame it and bring beauty and order and abundance and, and keep doing this and like fill the earth with this garden so that the earth would be like this this dwelling place of God with humanity. It'll be like this beautiful city that's marked by these, all these arboreal like garden images. It feels like a beautiful park, but it's also like a city because something's been made of the world. And you're like, that sounds a lot like the end of the story. That's exactly the end of the story. There's a world full of beauty and abundance and order and love and righteousness and human beings around the whole globe that are operating in relationship with God and with love, no sin towards one another, with justice and righteousness and love. That's where it's headed. That was the mission from page one and two of the Bible. 
Like from the very beginning, that's where the whole thing was headed. And so God calls humanity to, to do that. And that, that means as humans multiply, that they're also called to, in, in the words of Genesis 1, um, subdue the earth or to make something of the world. It includes like the vocations, like as they multiply and as the garden stretches and, and somebody's really good at farming, it's like, man, l- keep, keep learning what's possible with farming. Keep learning what's possible with, with recipes and how to combine flavors and foods and, and cooking and preparation. Like, take a cow and learn how to make ice cream. Like, just learn that. Like, God wanted us to learn that. He wanted that to be a, a, a thing, right? That we could, that somebody would be like, drinking human milk after a certain age is weird. Um, let's try cows. You know, let's, uh, let's try cows. And then, uh, like, milk's good. And then, do you know if we chill that, well, we have to figure out how to do that, which people did. Crazy. Um, and we add sugar, and we move it and turn it slowly, it becomes this magic. It just becomes magical. This is the world that we live in. That was embedded into what's possible. You know what else is embedded into what's possible? The clothes you're wearing, the benches you're on, the windows, the vehicles, the phones, the houses, the apartments. The World Cup is possible. It was all possible. Thanks be to God. Um, and it was all possible. It's all there. And so humans are supposed to like, make something of the world, right? So somebody's getting better at farming. Somebody else is good at building structures. Somebody else is good at playing music. They learn to trade those things. And, and then we have to create commerce. And then we create a little village. And our village is big enough that we want to make sure nobody is kind of overlooked and overseen. So we create some sort of, sort of local government type things to make sure everything's working okay. As things spread out a little bit, we need some transportation systems to get us from here to there a little better. That'd be nice. Let's figure out that. We can make roads better and we can improve that. We can find structures that can withstand the, the different seasons that God has sown into creation a little bit better. That's great. We can learn how to do that, make that a little bit better. We can learn how to communicate as those villages become cities and the cities multiply as the world begins to be filled. We can learn how to communicate from, from here to other places through crazy stuff like radio waves and then satellites. Are you kidding me? possible. That all came from here. It was all like a part of it. And we can learn how to travel to see family over holidays, and we can learn how to create vocations, and we can pass all of our information that we've learned to the next generation through things like education. Wow. This was the mission of the world from the beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. And that mission was never rescinded. It was never taken away. It was never like, never mind, you messed up. Now the only thing that matters is forgiveness. Forgiveness is necessary. It's a part of the story. It's just not the only part of the story. And here's what happened. You know that the story took a plot twist, like stories do. A serpent comes into the garden. This antagonist makes his way in. And the antagonist offers two lies. Two lies. The first lie is fundamentally, God's holding something back from you. If you really want joy, chase it on your own terms, in your own way. Uh, The way that that serpent offered it was through this tree, this knowledge of good and evil that God had said, don't eat of that tree. If you take upon yourself your own authority to define what's right and what's wrong and you push me out of the picture and try to define that on your own terms, you will surely die. It will lead you to death. And the serpent comes in and says, "Mm, I think he's holding something back from you. I think think the best way to joy in life is to push him out and figure it out on your own. Second lie is, and, and you won't surely die. You won't surely die. The two lies are, did he really say? 
and, and you won't surely die. Like, go your own way, and the consequences won't be a big deal. And they did. And we've, and we've done the same thing. We've gone our own way, and we've experienced the consequences of that. And so in the beginning, that first experience, the, the Bible calls that word sin, which is just a rebellion against God. So you push him out. You take the authority to decide your own way on your own terms, and that's sin. And that sin leads fundamentally, most fundamentally, to separation from God. We rejected him. We pushed him out. And in our own sin, we're exiled from that garden, and we are in this world. And because of that sin, there is now, because of that sin, there's separation from God. And because of that separation, we live in a world that's marked by corruption and death. There's still beauty. God made this place. There's still beauty in you. God made you. There's still beauty in your neighbors. There's still beauty in every single human being on the planet. God made them, made us. But there's a brokenness that shot through all of us, shot through all of us. And really the rest of human history has been most of us in different ways and different forms and fashions, either A, trying to fix the whole thing on our own power, trying to make something of the world without God in this place of being separated from him, plagued by a curse within us. The curse itself has affected creation, making our work frustrating, our relationships frustrating. So we're trying that. Or B, getting so fed up with our lack of progress that we just numb ourselves and escape and collapse into hopelessness and depression and pain and just kind of distract ourselves endlessly to like, hey, squeeze what you can out of life, but it's kind of a bummer. And like, best of luck to you. I'm going to tr- I'm gonna try. You try. And if you can squeeze as much of joy and pleasure out as you can, good for you. That's basically what we've been doing for millennia, for millennia. It's not what we need to do because beautifully, stunningly, God offered into the middle of that story, into all that brokenness, instead of saying, mission failure, you turn from me, you wreck this thing, I'm going to like wipe it out and start over with a whole new world and a whole new planets and a whole new people or figure out a different way to do this. Instead, he said, I'm going to enter in. I'm going to bring a new human being. They will be like God and man together. And he's going to bring this new human being into the world to reverse the curse to deal with that root problem of sin. Not merely to bring forgiveness, but to bring a forgiveness of sin that leads to a reconciliation with God, that leads to a restoration and renewal of who we were made to be that helps us do exactly what God made us to do. And so the whole story of the Old Testament about how he's working that out through the people of Israel, that he intervenes, he redeems them by grace, he says, through you and through your offspring, I'm gonna spread a blessing to the whole entire world. Listen to this. This is um, from uh, another one from Joy to the World. I think this is just a beautiful, beautiful thing. Uh, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. The thorns and the thistles and the sorrow, the curse that has made its way all around the world, that when Christ comes in the world, that anticipation is he's going to come and he's going to bring blessing back into all those cracks of brokenness that make their way in our heart and our families and our city and our neighborhoods and our church and our communities and around the world. He's bringing blessing back in, restoration to all things. Or from O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, the sort of longings that were coming. This is, O come, thou rod of Jesse, free thine own from Satan's tyranny. From depths of hell thy people save and give them victory over the grave. O come thou dayspring, which is just a word for dawn. Come and cheer our spirits by thine advent here, by your coming. Drive away the shades of night and pierce the clouds and bring us light. 
Or this one from the same song. O come, desire of nations, bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad division cease and be thyself our king of peace. These are things that the people of God have been singing things like this forever, saying in this broken space where now we're separated from God, experience separation from God, and now we're like taking the gifts God's given us, and instead of like building a world where we're offering our lives sacrificially for others, now I'm trying to exalt myself above others with the gifts that God's given me. I'm trying to prove I'm worth loving because I feel separated from the God of love, and so I'm busy trying to like squeeze that out of people, and I'm trying to, whatever it takes to prove to you I'm worthy of loving, I'm worthy of loving, I'll, I'll do it. And I do that, and I do that, and it leads to anxiety and pain, and it leads to pride, and it leads to jealousy, and it leads to envy, and it leads to depression, it leads to anxiety, it leads to separations and divisions and hatred, hatred between family members, and then you get to like Hatfield and McCoy's kind of hatred, and then you get to like global hatred, wars and strivings and brokenness. We can protect our own resources at the expense of others who are in more vulnerable situations. We elevate our own interests at the expense of others and their interests. We work hard to defend our own righteousness at the expense of others. We divide around our value systems and value sets. And it's all because we're trying so hard, separated from God, to make something of the world. And the prayer is, come and bind in one the hearts of all mankind. Bid thou our sad divisions cease. Be thyself our king of peace. Make it new. Restore the world. And that's the promise that was given, is that one day he would, and he did. And that's what we celebrate in Christmas. It's what we celebrate in Christmas. That Jesus Christ came into the world to bring joy, to bring comfort, to bring restoration. I love this one from, you guys know God Rest You Merry Gentlemen? It's like a fun one that I, like, we don't sing very much. It's kind of weird, kind of intense. Uh, there's a lady named Annie Lennox that has a version of this. That I remember it was like 10 years ago. I was watching the lighting of the Rockefeller Christmas tree on whatever station that is. And um, NBC. Right? Something like that. Um, and uh, I was watching it, and all of a sudden, like, Annie Lennox is up there, like, just like this, like, anthemic song, and she's, like, singing, and everybody's, like, swaying their arms, and they're all excited. And I'm, like, the lyrics, I'm, like, this is on national TV in America. Like, this is, God rest you, merry gentlemen, let nothing you dismay. Remember Christ, our Savior, was born on Christmas Day to save us all from Satan's power when we were gone astray. Oh, tidings of comfort and joy. Another verse. Fear not, then said the angel, let nothing you affright. This is the angel to the shepherds in Luke 2. We'll talk about it on Saturday. Let nothing you affright. This day is born a Savior of, of a pure virgin, bright, to free all those who trust in him from Satan's power and might. Oh, tidings, like just news of comfort and joy. Like this is what happened when Christ came into the world. Joy, hope, healing, light, goodness, transformation. The beginning of the reversal of that curse that was sown into the creation itself in Adam's life. The beginning of the renewal of all things. And Christ comes into the world like light in the darkness. And we had been waiting. My favorite song, period, is, is O Holy Night. It's my favorite song because every lyric resonates in my soul. And this one, joy to the world. Or oh, sorry, you're like, that's not for your favorite song. <laughs> it's my favorite song. Learn the lyrics. Long lay the world in sin and error 
pining. It's like aching, waiting, yearning, hurting, weary, hoping, pining. There's a pining. Long lay the world in sin and error, pining, until he appeared. Advent. And the soul felt its worth. That matters. That's a treasure. The God-man came to earth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices. For yonder, which is like old school for over there, um, (laughs) breaks a new and glorious morning. Fall on your knees. What a night. What a night. The turning point in human history. You're like, well, then what happened? Why are we still here? Why is it still hard? Because when Christ came, he was born to save You shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins, the Mary had told to Joseph. He will save, the angel had told to Joseph, he will save his people from his sins. And that's what he did. He showed us what it means to be human. He showed us how to love and how to serve and how to live with truth and grace and righteousness and justice and kindness and boldness and compassion and gentleness. He showed us, and this righteous, innocent man laid down his life to pay the penalty for our sin, to deal with not just kind of like, hey, I'm here to fix things up. I'm here to deal with the root problem human rebellion against God, to pay the penalty for your sin, to bring forgiveness, and to bring cleansing so that you can be reconciled to God, so that the Holy Spirit from this heavenly realm could make its home in a human being again. And God and humanity could be one right now, right now, the Holy Spirit. God and humans are one. God is with us now. And in this stage now, he's equipping us to be who we always were designed to be, to be people who are learning to show his love, to to prove the glories of his righteousness and the wonders of his love, to be a people that are showing that, putting it on display, living it, and to be the means by which this good news of transformation makes its way around the world. We have a part to play here and now. As the message came to Israel in the person of Jesus, and through these 12 followers in this small group of early disciples, men and women, that gospel message spread and made its way from city to city, from nation to nation, across cultural boundaries and socioeconomic boundaries and ethnic boundaries and language boundaries and overseas and around the world, that news has spread and it's bringing transformation and healing and reconciliation and hope and the mission isn't done yet. It's not done yet. Listen to this. This is from Second Peter. The Apostle Peter, writing to churches that were scattered around the world, says this. You're like, why, why isn't he coming yet? I thought he was going to come and make all things new. Peter says, listen, I don't want you to overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like one day. Like time works differently to the eternal God. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but he's patient. He's being patient. He's not delaying because he's like not interested in doing anything. He's being patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come. He's like, don't get me wrong, it's coming. And it's going to come like, the th- like a thief in the night. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works there that are done there will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people 
ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness. The, the image here, it's, it's easy to misread it in the, way, in the way our translations work. It's not like everything goes away and he creates a whole new thing. It's these images of refining, of renewal, where everything broken, everything painful is expunged, eradicated, driven out, atoned for, transformed. One way or another, the whole thing is like purified. It's like purified, like, like a fire that purifies kind of impure gold to make sure the impurities are driven out and that what it was always designed to be is revealed and radiant. That's what's happening to the world, this purification. And Peter says, given that, given that, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming day of God? because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What Peter's saying is like, we're here in this story. And Peter was one of those people that was like bold to get the message to, to spread the good news of the gospel around the world, but also to spread the news of how that message changes us in all of his letters, to be people who live in holiness, to be who we were made to be, we talked about last week. And what he's saying is the things that we're waiting on, apparently, while we're waiting for Christ to come again, two things. One, he's patient. He wants more people to know him. He wants more people to hear the good news that you don't have to run away from him. You can turn towards him, and you don't have to turn towards him in shame. You can towards, turn towards him as one who's laid down his life to bring forgiveness and healing and grace. And two, for those who have done that, we get to steadily train ourselves to be who he designed us to be. As we wait for him, and what Peter says is, is these things hasten the coming of the Lord. As we become who he designed us to be, and the way we live and relate and operate in this world, the way we do our work faithfully in sacrificial love for others, and the way we pursue justice in this world here and now, and the way we engage with our neighbors and love and serve our neighbors, and the way we forgive, and the way we reconcile, and the way that we use the gifts God's given us generously to reflect his generous love for the world, and the way we do these things, we are hastening. We're, we're like speeding up the coming of the Lord. And we tell others the good news that they too can be reconciled to God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And God is waiting. How long? I don't know. Could happen now. Or, or in a couple minutes. Like, it just, like, it, and it, like, the Bible's like, wait. But as we're waiting, carry on the mission and be who God designed you to be. This is the mission of God's people as we wait for Christ to come again. May God help us. And when he comes again, he will make all things new. We won't be perfect. The world won't be perfect. But we are learning and training and preparing our hearts. So when he comes again, we're not going to shrink back in shame thinking, oh, that's a bummer. I'm still chasing life apart from you. We'll think, I've been waiting on you. I've been waiting for this day. I've been praying, come, Lord Jesus, come. I've been praying, Maranatha, bring it. Come and make all things new. And as I've been waiting, I've been engaged in your business, Jesus. Living the life you've called me to live or trying to learn and sharing the good news of the gospel with others. May God help us to be that kind of people. Let's pray. Jesus, would you help us uh, even now? Uh, would you rekindle in all of us uh, a hunger and a thirst for you? A hunger and thirst for righteousness. A hunger and thirst to to see the good news of the gospel make its way around our neighborhood? What would it look like to see dozens of neighbors come to know you, to experience your love, to experience your healing, to experience transformation and hope? 
what it would look like to see people all around the city, uh, many of which are cynical towards anything that has to do with religion, come to experience you, Jesus, your love, your power, your compassion, your grace, your righteousness, your goodness. What would it look like to see people reconciled as people from different cultural backgrounds and experiences and socioeconomic classes come to know you as our one Father, come to be bound together by one Spirit, that you would bind in one the hearts of all humans. You'd bid our sad divisions cease. Even over Christmas time, we're hanging out with other people and around family members, maybe there's tension, that you bid those sad divisions cease. You bring reconciliation, healing, and grace into this world. And would you help us to lean into what you've called us to do, who you've called us to be, not to earn anything from you, but to be responsive to your grace and to anticipate what you're going to do when you come again. Help us align our hearts with your heart and align our lives with your mission as a people. We need you, Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening. Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and the joy of all people. More information and more resources can be found online at parkchurch.org. Take care.